The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 11, Inferno. In 1969, the celebrated environmentalist Paul Ehrlich made a stark prediction. In a meeting held by the British Institute of Biology, he claimed that, and I quote, By the year 2000, the United Kingdom will simply be a small group of impoverished islands inhabited by some 70 million hungry people of little concern to the other 5 to 7 billion inhabitants of a sick world. It's tempting to quip that Ehrlich was predicting the fallout from Brexit and the UK's departure from Europe, and his crystal ball was simply off by a few years. But what kept him up at night and motivated the steady stream of dire warnings flowing from him was his certainty that human overpopulation would lead to unmitigated disaster as we shot past the Earth's carrying capacity. I left the UK in 2000 to move to the US, and I'm glad to say that at the time, the United Kingdom was still some way from becoming that small group of impoverished islands. Yet, despite the nation's refusal to bow to Ehrlich's predictions, his writings on population crashes and control have continued to capture the imaginations of people over the years, including, I suspect, that of the author and the brains behind the movie Inferno, Dan Brown. I don't know if Brown and Ehrlich have ever met. I'd like to think that they'd get on well. Both have a knack for a turn of phrase that transforms hyperbole into an art form. And both have an interest in taking drastic action to curb an out-of-control global human population. The movie Inferno is based on the book of the same name by Dan Brown. It's perhaps not the deepest movie here, but if you're willing to crack open the popcorn and suspend disbelief, it successfully keeps you on the edge of your seat as any good mindless thriller should. And it does provide a rather good starting point for examining the darker side of technology innovation, biotechnology in particular, when good intentions lead to seemingly logical but not necessarily moral actions. Inferno revolves round the charismatic scientist and entrepreneur Bertrand Zobrist. Zobrist is a brilliant biotechnologist and genetic engineer who's devoted to saving the world, but he has a problem. Just like Ehrlich, Zobrist has done the math and realised that our worst enemy is ourselves. In his genius eyes, no matter what we do to cure sickness, improve quality of life and enable people to live longer, all we're doing is pushing the Earth ever further beyond the point where it can sustain its human population. And like Ehrlich, he sees a pending future of disease and famine and death with people suffering and dying in their billions because we cannot control our profligacy. Zobrist genuinely wants to make the world a better place, but he cannot shake this vision of apocalyptic disaster, and he cannot justify using his science for short-term gains only for it to lead to long-term devastation. So he makes a terrible decision. To save humanity from itself, he creates a genetically engineered virus that will wipe out much of the world's population, plunging humanity back into the Dark Ages, but giving it the opportunity to reset and build a more sustainable future as a result. 
And because it seems that genius entrepreneurs can't do anything simply, he arranges for the virus to be elaborately released at a set time in a mysterious location somewhere in Europe. The problem is, the authorities are onto him. The authorities in this case being an entertainingly fictitious manifestation of the World Health Organization. As the movie starts, Zobrist is being pursued by WHO agents who chase him up to the top of a bell tower in the Italian city of Florence where, rather than reveal his secrets, Zobrist jumps to his death. But in his pocket, he conveniently has a device that holds the key to where he's hidden the virus. This is where Dan Brown brings in his symbologist hero, Harvard-based Robert Langdon. Langdon, having proven himself to be rather good at decoding devilishly complex puzzles in the past, is the ideal person to follow the trail and save the world. But he quickly finds himself unwittingly wrapped up in a complex subterfuge where he's led to believe the WHO are the bad actors and it's up to him and a young doctor, Sienna Brooks, to track down the virus before they get to it. What follows is a whirlwind of gorgeous locations, Florence, Venice, Istanbul, misdirections, plot twists and nail-biting cliffhangers. We learn that Sienna is, in fact, Zobrist's lover and has been using Langdon to find the virus so she can release it herself. We also learn that she's fooled a clandestine global security organization headed up by Harry Sims into helping her, and they set about convincing Langdon he needs to solve the puzzle while evading the WHO agents. The movie ends rather dramatically, with the virus being contained just before it's released. The bad folks meet a sticky end, Langdon saves the world, and everyone still standing lives happily ever after. Without a doubt, Inferno is an implausible but fun romp. Yet it does raise a number of serious issues around science, technology and the future. Central to these is the question that Paul Ehrlich and Bertrand Zobris share in common. Where does the moral responsibility lie for the future of humanity? And if we could act now to avoid future suffering, even though the short-term cost may be hard to stomach, should we? The movie also touches on the dangers of advanced genetic engineering, and it brings us back to a continuing theme in this book. Powerful entrepreneurs who not only have the courage of their convictions, but the means to act on what they believe. Let's start, though, with the question of genetically engineering biological agents, together with the pros and cons of engineering pathogens to be even more harmful. In 2012, two groups of scientists published parallel papers in the prestigious journal Science and Nature that described in some detail how to genetically engineer an avian influenza virus. What made the papers stand out was that these scientists succeeded in making the virus more infectious and as a result far deadlier. The research sparked an intense debate around the ethics of such studies, and it led to questions about the wisdom of scientists publishing details of how to make pathogens harmful in a way that could enable others to replicate their work. 
The teams of scientists led by virologists Ron Fouchier and Yoshihiro Kawaioka were interested in the likelihood of a highly pathogenic flu virus mutating into something that would present a potentially catastrophic pandemic threat to humans. The unmodified virus, referred to by the code H5N1, is known to cause sickness and death in humans, but it isn't that easy to transmit from person to person. Thankfully, the virus isn't readily transmitted by coughs and sneezes, and this in turn limits its spread quite considerably. But this doesn't mean that the virus couldn't naturally mutate to the point where it could successfully be transmitted by air. If this were to occur, and it's certainly plausible, we could be facing a flu pandemic of astronomical proportions. To get a sense of just how serious such a pandemic could be, we simply need to look back to 1918 when the so-called Spanish flu swept the world. The outbreak of Spanish flu in the early 1900s is estimated to have killed around 50 million people, or around 3% of the world's population at the time. If an equally virulent infectious disease were unleashed on the world today, this would be equivalent to over 200 million deaths, a mind-numbing number of people. However, the relative death toll would likely be far higher today as modern global transport systems and the high numbers of people living close to each other in urban areas would likely substantially increase infectious rates. It's this sort of scenario that keeps virologists and infectious disease epidemiologists awake at night, and for good reason. It's highly likely that one day we'll be facing a pandemic of this magnitude. Viruses mutate and adapt, and the ones that thrive are often those that can multiply and spread fast. Here we know that there are combinations of properties that make viruses especially deadly, including human pathogenicity, lack of natural resistance in people, and airborne transmission. There are plenty of viruses that have one or possibly two of these features, yet there are relatively few that combine all three. But because of the way that evolution and biology work, it's only a matter of time before some lucky virus hits the jackpot, much as we saw back in 1918. Because of this, it makes sense to do everything we can to be prepared for the inevitable, including working out which viruses are likely to mutate into deadly threats and how, so that we can get our defences in order before this happens. And this is what drove Fouchier, Carioca and their teams to start experimenting on H5N1. H5N1 is a virus that is deadly to humans, but has yet to evolve into a form that is readily transmitted by air. What interested Fouchier and Carioca was how likely it was that such a mutation would appear, and what we could do to combat the evolved virus if and when this occurs. To begin to answer this question, they and their teams of scientists intentionally engineered a deadly new version of H5N1 in the lab so that they could study it. And this is where the ethical questions began to get tricky. This type of study is referred to as gain-of-function research, as it increases the functionality and potential deadliness of the virus. Maybe not surprisingly, quite a few people were unhappy with what was being done. Questions were asked, for instance, about what would happen if the new virus was accidentally released. This was not an idle question, as it turns out, given a series of instances where infectious agents ended up being poorly managed in labs. But it was the decision to publicly publish the recipe for this gain-of-function research that really got people worried. 
Both science and nature ended up publishing the research and the methods, but only after an intense international debate about the wisdom of doing so. However, the decision was and remains controversial. Proponents of the research argue that we need to be ready for highly pathogenic and transmittable strains of flu before they inevitably arise, and this means having the ability to develop a stockpile of vaccines. This in turn depends on having a sample of the virus to be protected against, but this type of research makes many scientists uneasy, especially given the challenges of preventing inadvertent releases. Concerns like these prompted a group of scientists to release a consensus statement on the creation of potential pathogens in 2014, calling for greater responsibility in making such research decisions. These largely focused on the unintended consequences of well-meaning research, but there was also a deeper-seated fear here. What if someone took this research and intentionally weaponized a pathogen? This was one of the issues considered by the U.S. National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity as it debated drafts of the H5N1 gain-of-function papers in 2011 before they were released. In a statement released on December 20th, 2011, the NSABB proposed that the papers should not be published in their current form, recommending, and I quote, the manuscripts not include the methodological and other details that could enable replication of the experiments by those who would seek to do harm. However, this caused something of a furore at the time amongst scientists. The NSABB is an advisory board in the US and has no real teeth, yet its recommendations drew accusations of censorship in a scientific community that deeply values academic freedom. The NSABB eventually capitulated and supported the publication of both papers as they finally appeared in 2012, including the embedded how-to instructions for creating a virulent virus. But the question of intentionally harmful use remained, and it's concerns like this that underpin the plot in Inferno. Fouchier, Kawioka and their teams showed that it is, in principle, possible to take a potentially dangerous virus and engineer it into something even more deadly. To the NSABB and others, it raised a clear national security issue. What if an enemy nation or a terrorist group used the research to create a weaponized virus? Echoes of this discussion stretch back to the 2001 anthrax attacks in the US, where the idea of weaponizing a pathogenic organism became part of our common language. Since then, discussions over whether and how biological agents may be weaponized have become increasingly common. Intuitively, genetically engineering a virus to weaponize it feels like it should be a serious threat. It's easy to imagine the mayhem a terrorist group could create by unleashing an enhanced form of smallpox, Ebola, or even the flu. Thankfully, most biosecurity experts believe that the risks are low here. Despite these imagined scenarios, it takes substantial expertise and specialised facilities to engineer a weaponized pathogen. And even then, it's unclear that the current state of science is good enough to create an effective weapon of terror. More than this, though, most experts agree that there are far easier and cheaper ways of creating terror or taking out enemy forces than using advanced biology. 
And because of this, it's hard to find compelling reasons why an organization would weaponize a pathogen rather than using far easier and cheaper ways of causing harm. Why spend millions of dollars and years of research on something that may not work when you can do more damage with less effort using a cell phone and homemade explosives or even a rental truck? The economics of weaponized viruses simply don't work outside of science fiction thrillers and blockbuster movies, at least not in a conventional sense. And this is where Inferno gets interesting, as Zobris is not a terrorist in a conventional sense. Zobrist's aim is not to bring about change through terror, but to be the agent of change. And his mechanism of choice is a gain-of-function genetically engineered virus. Unlike the potential use of genetically modified pathogens by terrorists or even nation-states, the economics of Zobrist's decision actually make some sense, warped as they are. In his mind, he envisions a cataclysmic future for humanity brought about through out-of-control population, and he sees it as a moral imperative to use his expertise and wealth to help avoid it, albeit by drastic means. As this is movie make-believe, the technology Zobrist ends up developing is rather implausible, but it's not that far-fetched. Certainly, we know from the work of Fouchier, Kamioka and others that it is possible to engineer viruses to be more deadly than their naturally occurring counterparts. And we're not that far from hypothetically being able to precisely design a virus with a specific set of characteristics, an ability that will only accelerate as we increasingly use cyber-based technologies and artificial intelligence-based methods in genetic design. Because of these converging trends in capabilities, when you strip away the hyperbolic narrative and cliffhanger scenarios from Inferno, there's a kernel of plausibility buried in the movie that should probably worry us, especially in a world where powerful individuals are able to translate their moral certitude into decisive action. Some years ago, my wife gave me a copy of Daniel Quinn's book, Ishmael. The novel, which won the Turner Tomorrow Award in 1991, has something of a cult following, but I must confess I was rather disturbed by the arguments it promoted. What concerned me most, perhaps, was a seemingly perverse logic throughout the book that seemed to depend on ends, as defined by a single person, justifying extreme means to get there. Echoing both Paul Ehrlich and Dan Brown, Quinn was playing with the idea that seemingly unethical acts in the short term are worth it for long-term prosperity and well-being, especially when over time the number of people benefiting from a decision far outnumber those who suffered as a consequence. Ishmael is a Socratic dialogue between the pupil, the narrator, and his teacher, a gorilla that has the power of speech and reason. The book uses this narrative device to dissect human history and the alleged rise of tendencies that have led to a global culture of selfish greed, unsustainable waste, and out-of-control population growth. The book is designed to get the reader to think and reflect. In doing so, it questions our rights as humans above those of other organisms, and our obligations to other humans above that to the future of the Earth as a whole. Many of the underlying ideas in the book are relatively common in environmentalist thinking. What Ishmael begins to illuminate, though, is what happens when some of these ideas are taken to their logical conclusions. One of these conclusions is that 
if the consequence of a growing human population and indiscriminate abuse of the environment is a sick and dying planet, anything we do now to curb our excesses is justified by the future well-being of the Earth and its many ecosystems. The analogy used by Quinn is that of a surgeon cutting out a malignant cancer to save the patient, except that in this case, the patient is the planet and humanity is both the cancer and the surgeon. This is a similar philosophy, that of taking radical action in the present to save the future, that Ehrlich promoted in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. As a scientist and environmentalist, Ehrlich was appalled by where he saw the future of humanity and planet Earth heading. As the human population increased exponentially, he believed that, left unchecked, people would soon exceed the carrying capacity of the planet. If this happened, he believed we would be plunged into a catastrophic cycle of famine, disease and death that would be far worse than any preventative action we might take. Ehrlich opens his book with a dramatic account of him personally experiencing localised overpopulation in Delhi. This experience impressed on him that if this level of compressed humanity was to spread across the globe as he believed it would, we would be responsible for making a living hell for future generations, something he saw as his moral duty to do what he could to prevent. In the book, Ehrlich goes on to explore ways in which policies could be established to avoid what he saw as an impending disaster. He also looked at ways in which people might be persuaded to change their habits and beliefs in an attempt to dramatically curb population growth. But he considered the threat too large to stop at political action and persuasion. To him, if these failed, drastic measures were necessary. He lamented, for instance, that India had not implemented a controversial sterilization program for men as a means of population control, and he talked of triaging countries needing aid to avoid famine and disease by helping only those that could realistically pull themselves around while not wasting resources on hopeless cases. Ehrlich's predictions and views were both extreme and challenging, and in turn they were challenged by others. Many of his predictions have not come to pass, and since publication of the population bomb, Ehrlich has pulled back from some of his more extreme proposals. There are many, though, who believe that the sheer horror of his predictions and his proposed remedies scared a generation into taking action before it was too late. Even so, we're still left with a philosophy which, much like the one espoused in Ishmael, suggests that one person's prediction of pending death and destruction has greater moral weight than the lives of the people they are willing to sacrifice to save future generations. It is precisely this philosophy that Dan Brown explores through the character of Zobrist in Inferno. Superficially, Zobrist's arguments seem to make sense. Using an exponential growth model of global population, he predicts a near future where there is a catastrophic failure of everything we've created to support our affluent 21st century lifestyle. Following his arguments, it's not hard to imagine a future where food and water become increasingly scarce, where power systems fail, leaving people to the mercy of the elements, where failing access to healthcare leads to rampant disease, and where people are dying in the streets because they're starving, sick, and have no hope of rescue. As well as being a starkly sobering vision, this is also a plausible one, up to a point. We know that when animal populations get out of balance, 
they often crash. And research on complex systems indicates that the more complex, interdependent and resource-constrained a system gets, the more vulnerable it can become to catastrophic failure. It follows that as we live increasingly at the limits of the resources we need to sustain nearly 8 billion people across the planet, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that we're building a society that is very vulnerable indeed to failing catastrophically. But if this is the case, what do we do about it? Early on in Inferno, Zobrist poses a question. There's a switch. If you throw it, half the people on Earth will die. But if you don't, in a hundred years, then the human race will be extinct. It's an extreme formulation of the ideas of Quinn and Ehrlich, and not unlike a scaled-up version of the trolley problem that philosophers of artificial intelligence and self-driving cars love to grapple with. But it gets to the essence of the issue at hand. Is it better to kill a few people now and save many in the future, or to do nothing, condemning billions to a horrible death and potentially signing off on the human race? Ehrlich and Quinn suggest that it's moral cowardice to take the not-my-problem approach to this question. In Inferno, though, Brown elevates the question from one of philosophical morality to practical reality. He gives the character of Zobris the ability to follow through on his convictions and to get out of his philosophical armchair to quite literally throw the switch, believing that he is saving humanity as he does so. The trouble is... This whole scenario, while easy to spin into a web of seeming rationality, is deeply flawed. Its flaw lies in the same conceits we see in Cause for Action based on technological prediction. It assumes that the future can be predicted from the exponential trends of the past, a misconception that was addressed in Chapter 9 and Transcendence. And it amplifies, rather than moderates, biases in human reasoning and perception. Reasoning like this creates an artificial certainty around the highly uncertain outcomes of what we do, and it justifies actions that are driven by ideology rather than social responsibility. It also assumes that the enlightened, whoever they are, had the moral right to act without consent on behalf of the unenlightened. In the cold light of day, what you end up with by following such reasoning is something that looks more like religious terrorism or the warped actions of the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski than a plan designed to create social good. This is not to say that we are not facing tough issues here. Both the Earth's human population and our demands on its finite resources are increasing in an unsustainable way, and this is leading to serious challenges that should under no circumstances be trivialized. Yet as a species, we're also finding ways to adapt and survive and to overcome what were previously thought to be immovable barriers to what could be achieved. In reality, we are constantly moving the goalposts of what is possible through human ingenuity. The scientific and social understanding of the 1960s was utterly inadequate for predicting how global science and society would develop over the following decades. And as a result, Ehrlich and others badly miscalculated both the consequences of what they saw occurring and the measures needed to address them. 
These developments included advances in artificial fertilizers and plant breeding that transformed the ability of agriculture to support a growing population. We continue to make strides in developing and using technology to enable a growing number of people to live sustainably on Earth, so much so that we simply don't know what the upper limits of the planet's sustainable human population might be. In fact, perhaps the biggest challenge today is not providing people with enough food, water and energy, but in overcoming social and ideological barriers to implementing technologies in ways that benefit this growing population. Imagine now that in 1968 a real-life Zobrist had decided to act on Ehrlich's dire predictions and indiscriminately rob people of their dignity, autonomy and lives, believing that history would vindicate them. It would have been a morally abhorrent tragedy of monumental proportion. This is part of the danger of confusing exponential predictions with reality and mixing them up with ideologies that adhere religiously to a narrow vision of the future, to the point that its believers are willing to kill for the alleged long-term good of society. Yet, while such thinking can lead to what I believe is an immoral logic, we cannot afford to dismiss the possibility that inaction in the present may lead to catastrophic failure in the future. If we don't get our various acts together, there's still a chance that a growing population, a changing climate and human greed will lead to future suffering and death. As we develop increasingly sophisticated technologies, these only add to the uncertainty of what lies around the corner. But if we're going to eschew following an immoral logic, how do we begin to grapple with these challenges? Perhaps one of the more difficult challenges that scientists and academics more broadly face is knowing where to step out of the lab or the office and into the messy world of politics, advocacy and activism. The trouble is, we're taught to question assumptions, to be objective, and to see issues from multiple perspectives. As a result, many scientists see themselves as seekers of truth, but skeptical of the truth. Because of this, many of us are uneasy about using our work to make definitive statements about what people should or should not be doing. To be quite frank, it feels disingenuous to set out to convince people to act as if we know the answers to a problem, when in reality all we know is the limits of our ignorance. There's something else, though, that makes many scientists leery about giving advice, and that's the fear of losing the trust and respect of others. Many of us have an almost pathological paranoia of being caught out in an apparent lie if we make definitive statements in public, and for good reason. There are few problems in today's society that have cut-and-dried solutions, and to claim that there are smacks of charlatanism. More than this, though, there's a sense within the culture of science that making definitive statements in public is more about personal ego than professional responsibility. The unwritten rule here sometimes seems to be that scientists should stick to what they're good at, asking interesting questions and discovering interesting things, and leave it to others to decide what this means for society more broadly. This is, I admit, something of an exaggeration, but it does capture a tension that many scientists grapple with as they try and reconcile their primary mission to generate new knowledge with their responsibility as a human being to help people not make a complete and utter mess of their lives. Not surprisingly, 
these lines become blurred in areas where research is driven by social concerns. As a result, there's a strong tradition in areas like public health of research being used to advocate for socially beneficial behaviours and policies. And scientists focusing on environmental sustainability and climate change are often working in these areas precisely because they want to make a difference. To many of them, their research isn't worth their time if it doesn't translate into social impact, and that brings with it a responsibility to advocate for change. This is the domain that scientists like Paul Ehrlich and Dan Brown Zobrist inhabit. They're engaged in their science because they see social and environmental problems that need to be solved. To many researchers in this position, the science is a means to a bigger end rather than being an end in itself. In fact, I suspect that many researchers in these areas of study would argue that there is a particular type of immorality associated with scientists who, with their unique perspective, can see an impending disaster coming and decide to do nothing about it. Here, the ethics of the scientist advocate begin to make a lot of sense. Take this thought experiment, for instance. Imagine your research involves predicting volcanic eruptions, just to make a change from population explosions and genetically engineered viruses, and your models strongly indicate that the supervolcano that lies under Yellowstone National Park could erupt sometime in the next decade. What do you do? Do nothing, and you potentially condemn millions of people, maybe more, to famine, poverty, disease, and death. Instinctively, this feels like the wrong choice, and I suspect that few scientists would just ignore the issue. But they might say that because of the uncertainty in their predictions, more research is needed, including more research funding and maybe a conference or two to develop the science more and argue over the results. In other words, there'd be probably lots of activity, but very little action that would help the people who would be affected if such an eruption did occur. To some scientists, however, this would be ethically untenable and an abdication of responsibility. To them, the ethical option would be to take positive action, raise awareness, shock people into taking the risk seriously, hit the headlines, give TED Talks, make people sit up and listen and care, and above all, motivate policymakers to do something. Because, so the thinking would go, even if the chances are only one in a thousand of the eruption happening, it's better to raise the alarm and be wrong than stay silent and be right. This gets to the heart of the ethics of science activism. It's what lies behind the work of Paul Ehrlich and others, and it's what motivates movements and organisations that push for social, political and environmental change to protect the future of the planet and its inhabitants. And yet, Compelling as the calculus of saved future lives is, there's a problem. Pushing for action based on available evidence always comes with consequences. Sadly, there's no free pass if you make a mistake or the odds don't fall in your favour. Going back to the Yellowstone example, a major eruption could well render large swaths of the mid-US uninhabitable. Agriculture would be hard hit, with air pollution and localised climate shifts making living conditions precarious for tens of millions of people. On the other hand, preparing for a potential eruption would most likely involve displacing millions of people, possibly leading to coastal overcrowding, loss of jobs, homelessness and a deep economic recession. The outcomes of the precautionary actions, irrespective of whether the predictions came true or not, would be devastating for some. 
They may be seen as worth it in the long run if the eruption takes place, but if it doesn't, the decision to act will have caused far more harm than inaction would have. Now imagine having the burden of this on your shoulders because you had the courage of your scientific convictions even though you are wrong, and it becomes clearer why it takes a very brave scientist indeed to act on the potential consequences of their work. This is obviously an extreme and somewhat contrived example, but it gets to the core of the dilemma surrounding individuals acting on their science, and it underlies the tremendous social responsibility that comes with advocating for change based on scientific convictions. To make matters worse, while we all like to think that we're rational beings, scientists especially, we're not. We're all at the mercy of our biases and our beliefs, and all too often we interpret our science through the lens of these. And this means that when an individual, no matter how smart they are, decides that they have compelling evidence that demands costly and disruptive action, there's a reasonably good chance that they've missed something. So how do we get out of this bind where conscientious scientists seem to be damned if they do and damned if they don't? The one point of reasonable certainty here is that it's dangerous for an individual to push an agenda for change on their own. It's just too easy for someone to be blinded by what they believe is right and true and as a result miss ways forward that are more socially responsible. At the same time, it's irresponsible to suggest that scientists should be seen and not heard, especially when they have valuable insights into emerging risks and ways to avoid them. One way forward is in collective advocacy. There's a much greater chance of a hundred scientists having a clear view of emerging challenges and options than one lone genius. And in reality, this is how science gets translated into action on many large issues. But this does mean that experts need to be prepared to work together and have the humility to accept that their personal ideas may need to be reined in or modified for the common good. This is where most experts are at with big issues like climate change and vaccines. But there are many other socially important issues that either don't raise to the level of collective efforts from scientists or are still uncertain enough that there's not enough evidence for a consensus to emerge. So what are the socially responsible scientists to do in these cases? In 2007, the scholar Roger Pilkey Jr. grappled with some of these challenges in his book, The Honest Broker, Making Sense of Science in Policy and Politics. Pilkey was especially interested in how science and scientists inform policy and operate within the political arena. Because of this, his book takes quite a narrow view of advocacy, particularly when it comes to exploring how scientists can use policy advocacy to bring about change. But much of his analysis is relevant to any scientist trying to thread the needle of remaining true to their profession while acting as a responsible citizen. Pilkey astutely recognises that there is no single best way that scientists can translate what they know and what they believe to be true into societally relevant action. Instead, taking his own advice, he suggests that there are a range of possible options here, with four in particular standing out. These he referred to as four idealised roles of science in policy and politics, but they apply equally well to scientists trying to bring about what they consider to be positive social change. 
The first of these roles is the pure scientist. This is perhaps closest to the picture of the scientist I drew earlier in this chapter, the person committed to objectivity and evidence who is seriously worried by the idea of making decisions where there is only uncertainty. Pilkey characterises the pure scientist as someone simply interested in generating new knowledge and placing it in a common reservoir of information, which they leave to others to dip into and use. In other words, they create a wall between themselves and the society they live in, assuming that someone else may one day find some use for what they do. If this sounds a little unrealistic, it probably is. Even Pilkey acknowledges that such scientists are probably found more frequently in myth than in reality. Yet this is a relatively common stereotype of scientists, certainly within Western culture. Pilkey's next category is the science arbiter. This, I suspect, is where many scientists are the most comfortable. In Pilkey's framework, science arbiters recognise that effective and socially relevant decisions are made on good advice and clear information about the pros and cons of different options. Rather than having an opinion on what is the right or the wrong decision, science arbiters help ensure people have access to the science and evidence they need to make the best possible decisions. There is a twist here, though. Pilkey also argues that because people who feel comfortable in this role have a deep belief in the scientific process, they tend to focus on issues that they believe can be resolved through science while staying away from those that they believe cannot. Then there are scientists, for instance, those working in areas driven by real-world challenges like health and sustainability, who feel that they cannot morally justify providing what seems to them to be scientifically sound but socially hollow options to decision makers. These, in Pilkey's terminology, are the issue advocates. They're scientists on a mission to change the world, to fix what they see as mainly social problems, and to use their science to the best of their ability to do this. These are people who use science as a means to an end and are driven by their own beliefs and convictions. Zobrist would be considered by Pilkey to be an issue advocate, as would, I suspect, Paul Ehrlich. And finally, there is the honest broker. This, in Pilkey's language, is the person who actively engages with decision makers to help them see how science and evidence support or don't support the various options that are open to them. This is the scientist who believes more than anything in helping people make the best decisions they can based on the evidence, but who understands that ultimately they don't have the right to dictate which decision is made. Pilkey tries not to stand in judgment of the four ways he describes scientists engaging with politics and policy, but it's clear from his writing that he's a fan of the honest broker, and so to be honest am I. This is the role I try to carve out for myself in my public-facing work, trying not to judge others or advocate for a specific course of action, but to help people make the best informed decisions for themselves and their communities based on available evidence and insights. This is an approach that, to me, avoids mistaking personal values for the right values, and respects deeply held beliefs and values in others, even when you may disagree with them. It's a path towards empowering others while trying not to let your ego get in the way. And with most of the issues I grapple with in my work, I'm comfortable with this, because in most cases there are no bright line right or wrong answers. This honest broker role extends to 
any situation where someone with useful knowledge and insights is prepared to engage with people who might benefit from them. Of course, sometimes people will make decisions that lead to harm anyway, but how much more tragic if these decisions are made simply because they were never aware of the alternatives or the consequences. Yet I'll be the first to admit that this role, while being rooted deeply in values that I consider important, has its problems. And nowhere are they more apparent than when issues of such moral peril arise that not to advocate for a certain stance or a particular way forward ends up becoming tacit support for not taking action. To many, inaction on climate change and the use and proliferation of nuclear weapons falls into this category, as does the rejection of vaccines. These are issues where indecision or lack of advocacy has a high chance of adversely impacting millions of people. In cases like these, there is increasing pressure to shift from being an honest broker to an issue advocate. And yet, because of the dangers of values and belief-driven short-sightedness, even in these cases, it's hard to justify one person being the sole arbiter of truth. Rather, as Pilkey argues, this is where we need institutions and socially sanctioned organisations to act as the instruments of advocacy. Pilkey mentions groups like the National Academy of Sciences and, by inference, similar organisations around the world. But I expect others would include advocacy groups here as well that are focused on specific issues, yet recognise the importance of science in advocating for action. This is, of course, another sticky point, because as soon as an issue becomes a focus of attention, the battles begin for whose science is the most legitimate. As someone with leanings towards being an honest broker, I would suggest that where there is uncertainty in the science, which is pretty much always that's the nature of science, the weight of scientific evidence becomes critical. There are always going to be multiple ways that science can be interpreted, but some of these will most likely to be more strongly supported by the evidence than others. And here, nothing good ever comes from simply selecting the science that supports your issues and rejecting the science that doesn't. This is a path to self-delusion, because at the end of the day, wishing something is true simply because it supports what you believe doesn't make it so. But then what do you do if the evidence seems to point towards a looming catastrophe and no one's listening? This is where charismatic voices like Paul Ehrlich's arise, and it's where, as a society, we need to decide how to respond to what they preach. In the case of Inferno, overpopulation is perceived as a looming catastrophe that will result in misery and death for hundreds of millions of people unless radical action is taken. Zobrist sees this and believes he has a solution, but having been effectively outcast by the scientific community for his radical ideas, he resorts to drastic measures. In the movie, Zobrist's plan to cull half of the world's population through his genetically engineered virus is, of course, abhorrent. This is what provides the dramatic tension that keeps us glued to the screen, fueled by our moral outrage. But there's an interesting twist here, and it comes not from the movie, but from the book that the film's based on. 
Dan Brown's book, Inferno, like the movie, follows a crazy countdown as Robert Langdon struggles to unravel the clues left by Zobris to the location of the virus. As in the movie, Zobris believes enough in the legitimacy of his actions that he's willing to die rather than give up his secrets. But then, as the location of the virus is discovered, the book and the movie diverge quite dramatically. In the book, Langdon and the WHO arrive too late. The virus has been released and has been infecting people for some time, but surprisingly, no one's dying. It turns out that a book Zobrist didn't create a killer virus. Instead, he created a virus that rendered every third person it infected sterile. What's more, he ensured that this every third person trait was heritable, meaning that in every subsequent generation, one in three people would also be sterile. In the book, no one died as a result of Zobrist's genetically modified virus. Rather, he set in motion a chain of events that would eventually lead to the Earth's human population being reduced to a manageable size. Instead of being the evil scientist intent on murdering people, he emerges as a lone genius saviour of the future of humankind. This outcome intrigues me, as it supports the idea of the lone visionary scientist as someone who can save the world. And it suggests that they could probably do this better than a committee of scientists because they have a clarity of vision and purpose that a large and unwieldy group would lack. I'm pretty sure that the book version of Zobrist's plan would have had a profound and ultimately positive impact on the Earth's human population. It may also have led to an improved quality of life for many people, although humans being humans, there's also the chance of self-interest and ignorance putting paid to this possibility. Yet despite its superficial elegance, something worries me about the idea of imposing sterility on a third of the world's population in the name of social good. And this is the lack of choice that Zobrist's victims had. For sure, he saved society in the book, but in doing so, did he end up betraying the very individuals that make up that society? This is a particularly knotty and ultimately unresolvable moral question, as it comes down to weighing the good of the many against the good of the few. The book version of Zobrist violates basic human rights by dictating the fate of people infected by his virus, and I doubt that this would have been a bloodless violation. While indiscriminate sterilization may seem a small price to pay for averting world hunger, try telling that to someone desperate for children who has been robbed of the opportunity, or someone who depends on a growing family to sustain their livelihood. We're also still left with the problem that no matter how much we delude ourselves, we cannot predict the future. Which means that compelling as Book Zobrist's case was, he had no way of knowing whether he needlessly condemned a third of the world's population to sterility. This was a gamble he was willing to take, but what gave him the right to take this gamble in the first place? Not the people whose futures he was playing with, that's for sure. And this is ultimately where the challenge lies when it comes to lone scientist advocates and genius activists. No matter how compelling their vision of the future or how persuasive their solutions to making it better, where do they get the right to act unilaterally on issues that ultimately impact us all? Some, I suspect, would argue that time and necessity are on their side. I would counter that these are not excuses for preventing people who are likely to be affected by major decisions from having a say in their collective future. This, though, means that we need 
better ways of making collective decisions as a society, as we saw in Chapter 10 and The Man in the White Suit, especially where technological innovation is both pushing us toward potentially catastrophic futures and yet is potentially part of the solution to avoiding such futures. And we need to get better at making such collective decisions fast, because if there's one thing that these lone scientist advocates have a right in many cases, it's that time is short. And nowhere is that more apparent than with an issue that's tightly coupled to a burgeoning human population – climate change. The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard. <laughs>